shall we? Heavenly Father, uh, I just want to invoke your presence, recognizing that you are already here, that you are the ever-present one. Um, But now I just pray that you would help me, that you would be here with all my friends, my brothers and sisters, uh, that through your Spirit you would turn our attention to you, to your Word, and to your goodness. And through that goodness, Lord, teach us and change us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is a quote from uh, one of Louis C.K.'s stand-up routines. The courage it takes for a woman to say yes is beyond anything I can imagine. A woman saying yes to a date with a man is literally insane and ill-advised. How do women go out with guys when you consider there's no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. Globally and historically, we're the number one cause of injury and mayhem to women. We're the worst thing that ever happened to them. Now, the irony that this guy, performing a spot-on stand-up routine about how threatening men are to women, is, well, how do we measure irony? Well, if we measure irony by weight, it's roughly an aircraft carrier's worth. If we measured irony by heat, this is hotter than 10 suns. If we measured irony with money, this would make Bill Gates look like a pauper. You get the idea, this is ironic. If you don't know, last November, Louis C.K. was accused of and admitted to habitually engaging in, I'll put it politely, sexually aggressive behaviors directed at multiple women over the course of many years. If it weren't so heartbreaking, it would be funny. But Louis C.K. is just representative of a slew of men who since last fall have been guilty of sexual misconduct. The offenses range from lewd speech to rape. The victims range from young girls to adult men. The venues range from Hollywood sets to government offices. But in all the cases, there are two themes in all the stories. Consent and safety. Regardless of whether there was physical contact or whether an actual law was broken, each of the victims felt coerced. They did not consent. And the man who violated them had power over them to uh, fire them, derail their career, shame them, or certainly physically harm them. There was no safety. In the midst of all these revelations now, there's a sort of contrasting story. Another comedian, Aziz Ansari, was accused by a woman he dated once of abuse of power and sexual coercion. But many commentators, interestingly, are seeing a distinction. By the anonymous woman's own admission, she willingly engaged in sexual activity with Ansari, but wasn't comfortable with continuing. After a series of advances and retreats and relentings and defenses, the woman finally chose to leave. Ansari got her a car and sent her on her way. Now, the distinction that some see in this story centers on the woman's willingness to engage in some sexual activity, but then later accusing him of sexual misconduct and, and sorry, holding no real unique power over her. Some feel that Ansari was guilty only of immaturity and argue that he is a kind of victim. He did not give consent to have his sex life published on babe.com. And I doubt he feels very safe these days or if his career will go undamaged. Consent and safety. 
We'll return to those in just a minute. But let me be clear here, crystal clear. The sexual violence and misconduct that has been perpetrated on women for eons and continues to this day in our offices, schools, and yes, even our churches is inexcusable, often criminal, vile, unchristian, and should not be tolerated, period, full stop. These offenses point to problems in the world's sexual ethics as a whole. A world where near-complete sexual freedom is embraced by more people than ever, yet sexual abuse and manipulation flourish. So what's the problem? Writer David Quinn put forth a theory that just about nails it, in my opinion. He wrote in the London Times, The only sexual rule today is consent. And men have been taught that women are potentially always sexually available because that is what liberation means. In other words, the sexual revolution liberated women from the constructs that limited their availability, constructs like marriage. And therefore, men who never would have considered making even polite advances toward a married woman or a friend's sister or perhaps a subordinate at work will now feel permission to stretch consent to the breaking point with whomever they want because we're all liberated. I was born at the start of the sexual revolution. By the time I made it out on my own in the early 80s, I was fully on board with it. I had multiple partners. I cohabitated for a couple of years. I had a relationship with a married woman, and I consented to the abortion of my first child. Though I could never have articulated it, I had fully bought into Quinn's revolutionary doctrine. The only barrier between me and a partner was consent. What took a while to figure out was that it cut the other way too. I was looking for nothing but consent, but every woman I encountered was looking for safety and security. Yet the revolution claimed that women were just like me. Their drives were just like mine. They wanted all the same things at the same frequency for the same reasons and in the same ways that I wanted them. So we're supposed to just enter into a contract. That's consent. And at the end, whether it was just a night a few months or maybe a few years, we shake hands and call it good. I actually suggested this very arrangement to one woman, what is now called friends with benefits, and it worked for exactly zero minutes. (laughs) She gave me consent, but I did not return the safety and security she was secretly after. We both walked away from that transaction broken. It's not very often a pastor can march out the details of his darkest days and feel good about it, but today I can. Because one, I hope you'll see that my argument in favor of God's plan for marriage doesn't just come from a book. It comes right out of my own pain. I pray that you will consider that. And two, I hope you recognize that there is no shame here today. It's not our desire to scare or guilt you into a way of seeing things. We recognize not everyone in this room feels the same way about this stuff. So everything I'm about to lay out for you now, I do with the knowledge of and utmost respect for those who may see it differently. 
but I pray that you will open your minds and hearts to what the Bible teaches about this. Let me focus on the centerpiece of what we'll call the seven biblical marriage principles. And the first principle speaks, speaks directly to the hashtag MeToo issue. And then we'll quickly cover the other six. But let's begin with the centerpiece. You can call it a gift economy. Women gift consent. Men gift safety. Now, this may at first blush sound like some kind of male chauvinism. But I'm not saying that women are weaker because they value safety. I'm saying they're different. I'm not saying men aren't capable of monogamy. I'm saying they're different. And it's not just me. I mean, look at the hashtag MeToo movement. 99% of the victims are women. Yes, there is a small fraction of victims who are men, but the only ones I could find are victims of other men. The exceptions just seem to prove the rule. Men are seeking consent. Women are seeking safety. The truth of this is why the Louis C.K. bit is funny in the first place. And it's not just old white evangelicals like me saying that there's a difference. The article from which I quoted David Quinn was titled, How Female Sexual Liberation Led to Male Sexual Entitlement, written by noted Australian feminist and author Vanessa Batham. Now, to be fair to her, the point that she was making in her article was that these differences should continue to be squashed together into a new homogenous sexuality. Her case is that an unjust patriarchy is what continues to propagate these differences, and those differences are what's causing all the turmoil. I'm guessing that Badham would agree with other commentators who say that the turmoil we're experiencing is precisely because we haven't gone the whole distance yet. We haven't let sexual liberation and sexual uniformity fully out of the bag. It's like a parachute that's only partially deployed or a water skier being dragged behind a boat that's not quite up on the skis yet. We're suffering because the revolution isn't, is incomplete. Author Melissa Sontag Brudo puts it this way. We need to grapple with the uncomfortable and potentially conflicting sexual needs people may have. And people need to know how to safely, progressively, and openly acknowledge and act on them. So in other words, find some sort of way to negotiate consent and safety so that they cancel each other out. We find a way to make our sex more transactional. That sounds romantic. Because I'll tell you, the only people who are as depressed about prostitution as the prostitutes are their customers. The only thing the prostitute and the John have in common is that they both wish there was another way to get what they want. And a kind of prostitution, a transactional approach to sex, is precisely what's being advocated for here. Friends, we're already living out those consequences. Aziz Ansari asks his date on the first date, so... How much safety do I need to provide in order to get your consent? And she responds, hmm, I'll consent this much for that many safeties. He agrees, but then what? He begins to bargain. He begins to push like all good deal makers do, trying to get the most for his money. 
That's just good business. That's how transactions work. And as we've learned, countless women are forced to ask, all right, how much consent must I offer my boss or professor or casting director in order to keep food on the table and a roof over my kid's head? How much consent for how much safety? What do I have to put up with? You see, God's plan is different. Do you notice it? Let me repeat principle one. Women gift consent. Men gift safety. Notice it is not a transaction. This is the giving of wedding gifts. Consent and safety are good things that God instituted inside the covenant marriage. Each is offered to the other freely as a gift. We read this in the beautiful retelling of the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. If you have the U version, you can open that up, search for Allen Creek. There's additional content, and the verses right there, those passages will be available to you. If you don't have it, download the U version. We've got goodies there every week. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The man said, This is how, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, notice verse 25 there. Their sexuality was free, it was open. Safe and consenting and mutual, freely given to each other. It was not negotiated. It was not shrouded in archaic and prudish rituals like marriage opponents claim. It was not oppressive and restricting. It's loving. It's mutual. It's freely given. It's a gift economy, not a transaction. But what made it all possible in its beauty and its freedom was the container of a covenant. God put limits around it. We can think of it like a six-sided pen in which God keeps his married sheep safe and fulfilled. And these six guarding principles are found in Matthew 19 where Jesus restates this marriage formula from Genesis and makes one addition. Rick spelled these out for us back in October in our Sherlock series, but I want to go through them again and expound on them a little differently. Here we are, Matthew uh, chapter 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. So the first principle we see here is that it is covenantal. It's covenantal, which means God has joined them together, and it means it starts with public vows before God. Now this accomplishes at least three things. And most importantly, it welcomes God as the center and sustainer of the union. It is a covenant of mutual submission. Ephesians 5 21. It is a covenant that says the other matters more. That the individual can pour themselves out for the other because God will fill you back up again. But how do you pour yourself out if there is no source for filling you back up again? 
You can't keep passing the same little scrap of bread back and forth to each other expecting each of you to eat it. It eventually disappears. It's gone. And without God as source, one might pour themselves out, but quickly find themselves empty, left with deep, deep unmet needs. These needs accumulate and result in either resentment or the temptation to look outside the covenant, usually both. Second thing, the covenant creates accountability for the couple themselves. I have said almost these exact words several times. Hey, you stood up in front of God and your Aunt Myrtle and me and said you were going to do this for life. Don't come to me now telling me you never really loved him. You get back there and fight for this marriage. Almost an exact quote. Accountability for the couple. Thirdly, the covenant defends against the boss who would otherwise trade that promotion for a little hanky-panky or just your silence while he leers at you. Well, but what if he's a real jerk and he doesn't respect marriage, you ask? That's my point exactly. He should. We all should respect the wedding ring. The writer of Hebrews says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Chapter 13, verse 4. How can any of us hold that creepy boss to a godly standard respecting marriage when we don't ourselves? Second of the principles that guard us, it's heterosexual. He made them male and female. Now we touched on this a little bit. God made men and women different in more ways than just anatomy. Men and women are of equal value, but we are not the same. And the irony that a culture that is so focused on diversity is blind to this most wondrous and exciting diversity, the the most astounding diversity between men and women, it just baffles me that we can value diversity over here and miss this, the most astounding diversity. Now, Rick will be addressing gender and same-sex relationships in more detail in the weeks to come. But for today, let us just briefly and respectfully point to this passage in Matthew 19 when the erroneous claim is made that Jesus never addresses same-sex marriage. He does, right here, male and female. There simply is no same-sex marriage model anywhere in the Bible. The third part of the enclosure pen, it's monogamous. The two become one, not the three, not the four. God's consistent message throughout Scripture from page one to page last is monogamy. And despite what uninformed critics say, the Bible never endorses any marriage form other than a monogamous one. Other forms are described, certainly, but never endorsed. And almost without exception are clearly labeled as ungodly models. The fourth part of our container, fourth principle, it's faithful. It's sexually exclusive. They become one flesh. Now, just 50 years ago, it would have seemed silly to underscore this, but the popularity of open marriages, polyamorous relationships, and pornography, which is just another way of bringing other people into your marriage bed, uh, it, it grows with every successive generation, the popularity of these things. God seemed to know what he was doing when he included this wall in his pen. 
The fifth principle of a godly covenant. It's permanent. What God joins, man must not separate. Now some of you have experienced real relief after a divorce. Perhaps freedom. Perhaps a healing. But in all my years, I have yet to find one person who found joy in it. Not one. Yet I know a lot of people including myself, who have found joy because we see our marriage as permanent. And despite the fact that divorces obviously happen, that sometimes it's just the only way forward, it's still an amputation. It's one flesh being mutilated. It breaks God's heart, the hearts of those involved, and all of us around it. Permanence is arguably the greatest source of safety. Finally, they're loving. These covenants are loving. In Matthew 19, Jesus' critics ask, why Moses permitted divorce at all? And Jesus explains it's because of hard-heartedness. Clearly then, the partners in a godly covenant must be soft-hearted to one another. In the end, the love and affection all of us long for is to be a key part of God's marriage enclosure. Now, I want to conclude by returning to my own story. Draw the contrast between the 27 years of covenant marriage I have enjoyed with Brenda and the years I tried to do sex and relationships under the world's transactional economy. And let me begin with a quote from E.W. Kenyon, who said, When new life, God's plan for sex and marriage, come into a man, it drives out the old nature And takes possession. So that wherever a man who has eternal life goes, you see the marks of it. He is a new creation man. He belongs to the new order of things. He has a new kind of love. God's sacrificial love. And that love makes a home in which it is safe for babies to be born. On the day I got the phone call telling me she was pregnant, I think my partner at that time, I'll, I'll call her Trish, was waiting to hear how I would react before she made the final decision to keep the child or to abort it. It wasn't hard for her to discern my feelings. I was barely 20 years old. She was older than me. In those days, there was still a good deal of stigma about children born out of wedlock, and I was not ready to endure that or have my dreams of a music career dashed by suddenly becoming a father. Trish had a career that a child would certainly interfere with. But most importantly, we didn't really love each other. We were infatuated, perhaps, but neither of us knew the first thing about real love and commitment. We didn't trust each other, and we were right not to. We were both in this just to get our own needs met, And we were slowly discovering that neither of us was going to deliver. The consent safety deal we had struck was souring. There was no covenant. And a baby would just bind us together in misery. An abortion made perfect sense outside of a godly covenant. I actually saw Trish 10 years after that or so. Brenda and I were married, and Kelly, our oldest, was just a baby. 
It was a brief, polite, very awkward chance kind of meeting. But I will always remember one thing she said in particular. So I hear you have a kid now. The tone of accusation was clear. The pain, you could hear the implied question. So what changed? Why couldn't you do this with me? I can only imagine how deep that pain ran for her. Trish eventually did get married, I understand, but she never had children. That was her one and only pregnancy. And she has passed out of childbearing years now. I carry the knowledge that my oldest child would now be 35. And I don't have the time or stomach to elaborate on all the weight that that knowledge carries with it. I will never know the kind of big brother I may have denied my daughters, what God may have been able to do through that child. I have no idea of how far the ripple effects stretch beyond my own pain, imagining Trish's pain, imagining the pain of that child. I, I only know that this pain is the sharpest that I feel stemming from my arrogant, self-focused sex life. And I carry that every day. My refusal to be a covenant man has deeply hurt my wife and had an impact on every relationship I have. But that is why the first verse I memorized after becoming a Christian was Romans 8.28. And we know that God works together for good, all things, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God has redeemed even the worst of what I've done. God's plan is the path to healing the past and blessing in the present. Friends, if if we want homes that are safe for babies to be born, they must be built on the foundation of Christ-centered marriages. Some of you will rightly point out that abortions and abuse and infidelity occur inside Christian marriages too at roughly the same rate. I would argue, no, they do not. Those things occur inside marriages which fail to live up to the covenant they were focused on, that they were founded on. Adapting a quote from G.K. Chesterton, we could say, godly marriage has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. We will hurt each other, even inside the marriage covenant. That's not the point. The point is that inside that six-sided covenant, we have already agreed to consent and safety. We have a rallying point we can return to when we do inevitably wander outside of it and, and cause hurt, whether it's minor or catastrophic. We step back into the consent and safety that God protects. We've agreed to come back to where God is. It's home base. And sometimes we try to fool ourselves by creating fake knockoff versions of marriage like I did. We, we like to play house. But it's always lopsided or missing one or more of the sides and so consent and safety eventually spill out. Without God as the rallying point, we have 
no center to return to when the storm hits. It's all fake. There's nothing that we truly agreed on except that we have needs and we should be getting them met. There's an old story about twin boys who grew up on a farm. And they awoke one morning on their 10th birthday to find a note that said, Go look in the barn. And they exchanged excited glances, realizing that this must be where their father has hidden a special gift. Barefoot and still in their pajamas, they ran full speed to find the barn door closed and a pitchfork leaning against it. And the first boy grabbed the pitchfork and threw open the door to see standing right there before him an enormous, huge pile of horse manure. He was dumbfounded. He couldn't believe that his father would play such a terrible trick on his birthday. He dropped the pitchfork and ran crying back into the house, heartbroken and angry. The second boy paused just a moment, watched his brother run away, and then then he picked up the pitchfork from where his brother had dropped it, and he leapt into that pile of manure with shouts and joy and excitement. He began digging like a madman, and when he couldn't take it anymore, he threw the pitchfork aside and began digging through it with his bare hands, all the while laughing and whooping with glee, becoming completely covered in the stuff. From the bedroom window, the first boy saw his brother and pulled himself together and and came back down to see what was going on, what was happening. He interrupted the excited boy and, and said, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Why would you claw through a big pile of manure? The other boy paused completely out of breath, up to his hips in poo, and and with the widest of grins, looked at his brother and said, with all this horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) Now the difference between these two boys is very simple. And it's not about having a positive attitude. The difference is not about perspective on truth. It's not about worldview or education, cultural context, value systems or politics. It's not about psychology or personality type. The only difference between these two boys is one of them believed that their father was good and gave them good things, and the other one did not. That's the only difference. One of them believed in the goodness and love of his father and the other one didn't. So people, as we stand and look at the marriage guidelines that God has gifted to us, some only see a father who plays tricks, who's trying to limit our joy, to control us, to snuff out our self-expression. But if we will open our hearts and our minds to the true nature of this God, we will recognize that inside the limits of the marriage covenant, when we allow God to be at the center of our marriages, the most wondrous of gifts is available to us because He is good. Now, inevitably, some of you are thinking to yourselves, did I hear him right? Did Pastor Dan just compare godly marriage to horse manure? 
And for those of you thinking that, I salute your developed sense of humor and irony. But in all seriousness, please do not miss the point. What I'm comparing godly marriage to is the most sought after, the most desired gift a person could ever want given from the hand of the most loving God. And Brenda, I thank God for you every day. Let's pray. Our good Father, I come before you once again and confess. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Some days, God, it's it's so difficult to look at the path that you've laid out, the, the limits, what seem like harsh rules, what seem so limiting, what are confusing and difficult and cause me to struggle and I can't see the pony. I can't see the pony. But God, once again today, I just recommit to you, I just trust you. I could say with the author of Proverbs, I can submit to you in all my ways and that you will make the way straight. God, I pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters here today that that we would not focus so much on the junk that the culture's throwing at us, the debate, the argument, and instead, Holy Spirit, guide our, our gaze to you, to your character, to who you are, because you are good and you give us good things. May we see it in all that you've laid out before us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks, friends, for being with us today. Um, we are going to have extended in just a couple minutes right here. We're going to talk about Bible study, so a bit of a change in subject. But be sure to be here next week. We're going to continue to press into all of these difficult topics, and we will see you then.